Today's conversation is amazing, but we do want to advise you some of the content may be triggering and we recommend listening away from your littles. Hello and welcome to the Wild and Free Mamas podcast. We are your hosts and trip leaders, Morgan and Sarah. We are here to bring you stories of courage, boldness, adventure, and hope. And we hope that they inspire us all to live braver lives devoted to Jesus. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Wild and Free Mamas podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Morgan. We're so glad you're here. We are so honored to talk to Brittany Todd today. Brittany and her family made national news five years ago when their lives were massively interrupted. Brittany, thank you so much for being here and being willing to share your story. Sure. Tell us a little bit about it yourself and take us back to 2018. Uh so my husband, we had been married long before he joined the military, but he's active duty Coast Guard now. It was like a decision that we made in the 2009 recession where it was like, we are, you know, it was like hard to find jobs and stuff. And the military seemed super <laughs> stable and guaranteed, which it really has been. But um, so he joined um, then. So we've been in the Coast Guard now, I think, 11 years. Um and we have, well, we have six kids now. So when he joined the Coast Guard, we had two. Um, and then, so the Coast Guard's kind of funny. I thought I was okay with the Coast Guard and not the other branches because um, I thought that it just meant at least you're not going to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. You'll, like, stay close. Well, what close means is, is by the ocean, which is awesome. Uh, but it also means little itty bitty teeny tiny places that nobody has ever heard of <laughs> all over the random country that you've never heard of before. So um, when he first got out of boot camp, um, we moved to Kodiak, Alaska, and <laughs> we were there for two years. And then after Kodiak, Alaska, we, we moved to Aguadilla, Puerto Rico. Um, and most people have heard of like old San Juan or San Juan because it's like the huge hub. We were on the other side of the island. It would take us like six hours to get to San Juan. Um, you know, on the rural, like but the beaches were gorgeous. Like I've never really been to Hawaii, so I can't really say anything, but I still feel like Puerto Rico is better than Hawaii for beaches. But, um, so we were in Puerto Rico for two years and, um, let's see, I guess going back a little bit. So Heidi is our third she was born in Kodiak. And then Henry's our fourth. He was born in Puerto Rico. Um, and then after Puerto Rico, we were in Puerto Rico for two years. And then we moved to Cordova, Alaska, which makes Kodiak, Alaska look gigantic. <laughs> I mean, Kodiak, Alaska had a Walmart. Um, Cordova did not. Well, okay, funny, funny side note story about the Walmart in Kodiak. Pitbull did a contest back in like 2012 of like to find the most remote Walmart in the United States and we won. So Pitbull actually came to Kodiak and we thought he was going to sing. So like literally the entire island like came out to this little field where he, they set up like all these speakers and everything for Pitbull and he didn't even sing. He literally sat down. We like gave him a key to the city and then he's like, bye guys, I got to get to my concert. And he like left in a jet. We're like, really, dude? <laughs> That's so random. Anyway, <laughs> I know. It was so random. I mean, it was like the place to be though. I I don't even know if I had heard of Pitbull before. <laughs> but yeah, it was, anyways, but that's the big city. Um, so then we lived in Cordova, which was teeny tiny. Um, 
And then even though it wasn't an island, like you couldn't drive out of Cordova, you had to take a boat or a plane to get out of Cordova. Um, I think there was 30 miles of road and that was it. Um, so anyways, and that's where, that's where we found out we were pregnant with Alice, who's our fifth. And they don't deliver babies on the island. So, or I guess not island. They don't deliver babies in Cordova. So like five weeks before you would have a baby, you would have to fly to Anchorage and then like stay in like, you know, not Ronald Donald, like McDonald house, but something similar to that to then have a baby and then fly back, (laughs) back home. Um, and then that while I was pregnant is actually when we got orders to Charleston. Um, so Alice was actually born in Charleston. We moved, uh, we decided to drive because I'm this weird person who was like, oh my gosh, this will be so much fun. We can drive clear across Canada. <laughs> and, you know, cause I was like 35 weeks pregnant. So I was like, let's drive across Canada, but I can't sleep in a tent every night. So we'll just do it like every two or three nights. It'll be great. Um, so we were in Canada for like two and a half weeks um, through like the Yukon and British Columbia tent camping. It was so cool to get clear to Charleston. And then we we got to Charleston. I was like 30, let's see, 37 weeks pregnant, I think. Um, and then like right at, let's see, Alice was born at 42 weeks. So I was 41 weeks and six days when Hurricane... Irene or hurricane, whatever that hurricane was that year in 2017. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, like putting boards up on the windows and we had never lived in the South or been to the South. And so like, I didn't know there was alligators and I didn't really think about the whole hurricane thing either. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) like boarding up the windows and I'm like calling birth centers in North Carolina and getting my like um records transferred to a birth center in North Carolina just in case we had to evacuate (laughs) then like the storm hit and we had a midwife call us and was like hey so I actually live on John's Island so I'll just come over to your house and we'll do a home birth if you go into labor because the roads are closed and my husband like starts hyperventilating and he's like I agreed to a birth center but I did not agree to a home birth and I was like it'll be fine (laughs) the whole idea behind us moving to Charleston is we had lived in these tiny places with like not as much resources. And honestly, I really think that those smaller communities with not not a lot of resources and a lot of opportunities to basically be outside all the time really helped us grow and like bond as a family because there wasn't a lot of outside stuff that would, you know, distractions. Um, But I also was like really looking forward to getting somewhere to where there was a little bit more opportunities um, I graduated from nursing school, like while I was pregnant with our first. So I had been a nurse already, but it was hard for me to find a job in these small places that they expected all this experience. And I didn't really, I couldn't get it. So I was excited for Charleston. So then I could like go back to working and kind of, you know, see what a city looked like since we really hadn't raised kids <laughs> anywhere that made any, you know, that would really did much of anything. Um, so, and we, Charleston was the first time that we purchased a house. We had lived on military bases since, you know, since he joined because um, because of the small communities. So mm-hmm. we we actually, like, bought our house over FaceTime and then closed in the middle of Canada somewhere. Um, wow. <laughs> on the house. It was so pretty. We got there, and I was like, okay, I'm happy. This is good. <laughs> um, so this 
this house, because like we hadn't checked anything out, like, I mean, we had, we had read up about like John's Island and stuff and the, the crime stats weren't super high. The neighborhood that we moved into, it was like tucked back off of the road. It was like, you know, in this cute little lake community. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like we were moving to North Charleston where you, where they're in the news all the time for stuff, you know, we're off of a main road. Like we were tucked back in the trees next to a lake and it kind of looked like, you know, one of those resorts at Disney World where, like, all the retired people go and live and have, like, you know, resort villas. Um, I mean, I make it sound like it's way more expensive than it was. But it was so cute. It was, like, I mean, I don't know. All the houses were painted, like, pastel, like, Easter Charleston colors and everything. It was it was cute. <laughs> um, so that was the, like, that was the place that we were moving into. So there wasn't really a cons- necessarily, like, a thought that... And not that I, you know, I mean, I've always, like, locked my door at night and that kind of stuff when we're at home at all. But, you know, there wasn't a huge, like, I need to be on, like, high alert at all times because we're not in the safest part of town. Um, So it was kind of the thought was when we got to Charleston that we were going to do all this stuff and this was going to be a really great, like, opportunity place. Um, So because I didn't have a nursing license in South Carolina. So I had to work on some like continuing ed credits and that kind of stuff. And my husband also before his job that he got there had to travel. Um, they were sending him to Yorktown, Virginia for like two months at the beginning of 2018. Let's see. He left for welding school in Yorktown, Virginia on February 11th. Um, so it was on that Sunday that he left for school. We went to church and then he immediately left. Um, And then Monday went off with like, you know, without a hitch. I had like done a bunch of freezer meals and stuff because I was like, I'm not cooking while you're gone. Um, It'd been the first time he had been gone for more than a week or two in several years. And we had five kids now instead of, you know, two. So, um, so I had prepped a bunch of stuff. We had done like Monday, took the kids to school you know, did all the things, sent him a, you know, a picture, a couple of pictures of the house at the end of the day. And I was like, check it out. Like kids, kids ate dinner. They cleaned (laughs) up. It was a good day. (laughs) I was like, we're, you know, like we got this. It'll, it'll be great. And we went to bed Monday night and there was no issues. And then Tuesday morning, I remember waking up and he had a, he had sent me a text of saying like, good luck for the day. And I texted him back. And then you know, got up, got the kids ready for school and everything. Um, for context, um, our oldest Sarah, um, in 2018 was in second grade. Silas was in first grade. Um, Heidi was four, Henry was two. And then Alice was like right at five months old. Um, so got the kids all ready for school. We like headed out to school and where they went to school was actually in West Ashley, like right, really close to, um, I don't know, all the stuff, like Costco and everything in West Ashley. So it took us, like, maybe 20, 25 minutes to get over there to the school. Um, And they didn't have buses or anything, so I always drove the kids. But um, So I drove the kids to school, dropped them off, and then came home. And how I, like, how I did, like, the, you know, traffic loop was we would drive through the island. So we'd go through James Island and then, you know, on up. But then coming back, we would actually go – through West Ashley and hook onto John's Island um, to come home. So when we were coming home, basically it was like a long stretch down river road to get into our neighborhood, which is a two lane road 
there's only, you know, like, you know, whoever's like in front of you or behind you, like you're just all following each other because there's no other lanes to go. So there wasn't really a recognition from my standpoint that anybody could have been following me or, you know, whatever, because, you know, you're like on one road and you're driving for like several miles before we got to the neighborhood. Um, got the kids out of the car, <laughs> walked into the house. And I remember talking to the kids um, and basically telling them what we were going to do for the day because, you know, they wanted pancakes for breakfast. And then they were like super into t- um, pirate Tinkerbell fairy. Um, and then on Tuesdays we did, well, I had a small a women's small group in that, that morning. Um, so we usually would just like rush home, get everybody dressed, eat breakfast, and then we'd go straight out to small group. Um, and so we got home and I like, went into the front door, set Alice down on her car seat. She was still in the infant seat. Um, and then walked into the kitchen area because I was going to make pancakes. Um, and how our house was is we had like this long hallway, um, from the front door, there was a long hallway and then it would open up into like, you know, a break room with like, you know, dining room, kitchen and living room all kind of combined together. Um, and then by the time I got into like the kitchen area, that's when I heard like footsteps, like on the floor behind me. And I was like, and like my brain basically only like basically just said, okay, well that's like, those aren't the kids too fast. And like, those are the, that was the only thought that I had before he was like on top of me and, you know, he was like wrapped his arms like around me from the back. Um, so then at that point, like, I think I, I think I let out like a little scream, but not a whole lot because I really just kind of said, um, in my brain, it was like, I can't, I can't let him show fear or think that I'm afraid. So like, don't scream, which is kind of a stupid thought because if you're getting attacked, like make just make as much noise as you possibly can. Cause then maybe somebody will hear you. <laughs> I don't know if anybody this day would have heard anything or not. Cause it was actually overcast and rainy and you know how Charlestonians let, you know, with weather, like if it's even slightly yucky, they won't go outside. Right. So I don't think there was anybody out anywhere that day. Um, so then after that, I don't remember exactly when he like threw me to the ground. I don't know if he punched me before he threw me to the ground, but for the most part, I was like on the ground and he beat my head into the floor several times. Um, he held a knife up against my throat and was like demanding to t- ask me like where my phone was which was in the diaper bag that I had left by the front door. So I just, you know, I told him, I was like, it's in the diaper bag. Um, I think he left and then came back and it was like, he couldn't find my phone. So I was like, no, really, it's right there. And the whole time that he's doing this, I'm just thinking, I'm like, I can't believe there's somebody in my house, you know, cause like, you don't think that somebody's going to be in your house. Like that's never the plan, especially at eight o'clock in the morning when you didn't invite them in or even see them coming. Um, and so it was just like this several times I was like, I can't, like, why, why is he here? Like, I can't believe he's here. Like, hopefully he'll just take what he wants and he can leave. Um, and then, like, as he was, like, hitting me, I look up and I see Heidi and Henry, like, crouched in the corner of the, of the hallway. And I yelled at him. I was like, go, you know, go hide upstairs. So they left and went upstairs. Um, and then... I don't know, it was kind of this weird thought that I had of like, hey, because like, 
I mean, I've never even like taken self-defense classes or anything really a whole lot, but I remember one that, you know, we took way back in the day, like with my mom that was like, you know, um, like just basically go for their middle and like grab, twist and pull and it'll take any guy down. <laughs> so that's what I was trying to do was like, just like grab and twist. <laughs> But, like, his pants were so baggy that I couldn't get a hold of anything. And, like, and I didn't, you know. So I just was, like, you know what? Like, this is not working. Just, like, just give up. Like, this isn't working. And I don't remember exactly thinking, like, completely give up. But I do remember thinking, okay, like, we just need to stop (laughs) trying because absolutely nothing's working. And maybe he's just going to leave if I stop distracting him on stuff. Um. And then, then he tied me up. Um, so he tied my arm, my wrist together, and he tied my ankles together, and then he tied all four of them, you know. Um, and then I, and then he left. And originally, like when he first left, I was like, okay, just wait a couple of seconds, just to make sure that he's gone, and then I can get up. And then I could, and then I heard his feet again um, on the floor. I was like, okay, he's not gone yet. And so then I waited a little bit longer and then it was like pretty obvious that he was gone at that point. Um, it's kind of funny because like in the, in the movies, they talk about, or they show a lot of times with like fight scenes and stuff, they like will change the sound to where you can almost sense, like be sense what it would be like to be that person who's getting beat up with the sound being different. And like, it kind of is like tunnel visioned or like tunnel hearing And it really is that way. Like at that point, I mean, I'm like blind as a bat. Like my, my eyesight is like 2,800. (laughs) So like, Mm -hmm. I'm like super blind. So the second my glasses got thrown off, because I hadn't put in contacts yet that morning or anything. So the second my glasses got thrown off, like I wouldn't have been able to see anything anyways. Um, And then I was like bleeding from my face too at that point. So like there was no seeing anything. And I just remember hearing the echoing of stuff. And then I could feel, because our floors were hardwood and I could feel it feel the vibrations on the floor too so that's really all that I remember and then when I remember like thinking okay no he's he's like actually gone um I got up and like scooched over to like our junk drawer and grabbed out a pair of scissors and cut my wrist free because they were like like my left wrist was super like (laughs) numb like I was losing circulation so I cut myself free and then um, Alice was crying, and Henry was still asking for breakfast. Well, Henry had come downstairs, and he was asking for breakfast. So I got him a bowl of cereal, and I was like, sorry, it's not pancakes. And I just, like, I remember spilling the milk and everything on the floor. And I was like, sorry, buddy, this this is the best I can do. I just don't think that I was thinking clearly at all. And a lot of times when I tell this story, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people And it doesn't really make sense now that I can go through it and think through it. It doesn't really make sense to me either um, of, like, why I did what I did. And it was, like, there wasn't, like, a huge rush of, like, oh, my gosh. Like, there was something that – something really bad just happened. I need to go find my phone. I need to call 911. If if he did take my phone, then I need to go to the neighbor's house and I need to make sure to alert people. And I just didn't – I don't, I think that I might, I was beat enough times in the head that it just didn't even cross my mind. Um, I've talked to this, to my psychologist so many different times and she was like a lot of times in trauma, um, and this isn't even just the fact that I was physically beaten too, but like in trauma, a lot of times your brain will actually like digress back. It'll basically retreat back into like, you know, your basic needs of survival, you know, like 
like kids, they, they understand basic necessities or basic needs, but they don't know. I mean, my two-year-old wouldn't have ever thought to go call the police because he's two and he wouldn't think that way. And I think that the way that I've been able to understand it of how I was, was I didn't, I like, I wasn't processing stuff the way that an adult would normally process things. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even look for my phone cause he had asked so many times for it that I was like, well, my phone's gone. I looked out the window cause our door had a window on it. I looked out the window and I noticed that the neighbor's car was gone and I was like, well, he's gone. So like, and there's no way that I'd make it anywhere else. So I'm fine. Like everybody's fine. He's gone. I'll just go take a nap and turn on, you know, pirate fairy. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be fine once, you know, once I wake up, I don't know. So I grabbed Alice out of the car seat and I walked upstairs and I put her in her crib. Not that like nine 30 in the morning is nap time, but that's what I did. So I put her in her crib and then I turned on, you know, probably pirate fairy for Henry to watch. And I remember thinking because I told, I told Heidi and Henry to go upstairs and hide. I figured that Heidi was just scared and in her room hiding and I'd see her later in the day. Um, I was like, well, she'll come out later and like hang out with Henry. I'm sure it's fine. So I just went and like, and I, you know, remember going to bed. (laughs) Um, And I don't really remember a whole lot else from, from the day. Um, I woke up sometime that it was late afternoon. I didn't realize that it was so late in the day, but it was late afternoon. And I was like, I remember thinking, I'm like, I'll just make sure that he actually took my phone and I don't have it. So I walked downstairs and I opened up the diaper bag and he's like, it, it was literally right there. Like the first thing you could see. So it's like, you've got to be kidding me. I've had my phone the entire time. <laughs> okay. So I picked it up. And the first text message I saw was from our pastor's wife, Laura Graves. She had texted me and she's like, hey, you know, you missed small group this morning. We missed you. You know, I know that Kevin just left. Like, are you okay? Just wanted to check on you. So I texted her back and I was like, hey, I got beat up. Call the police. (laughs) And so then she like she actually like called the police. My husband, because he hadn't been able to get a hold of me. And then the school obviously had called him saying, hey, your wife was never here to pick up the kids from school because it was like 5.30 at night at this point. Um, and the kids were, Sarah and Silas were just sitting in the office with the principal. And he was like, hey, so what's up? Um, and so then the school and um, and my friend both called 911. The police showed up. Or I guess, I think the police actually were already there when I was doing all this because Kevin had attempted to like, I guess when you're not in the same like jurisdiction as when you're calling or same county or whatever, it's like super hard for you to call 911 on a different county than where you are calling from. So it was like he had to get bounced around to a bunch of different places and then ended up, you know, finally getting a hold of him. And he's like, no, seriously, like, can you just go? Like, I'm telling you, there's something that's wrong. My wife wouldn't have normally not picked kids up from school. Um, so and after I texted Laura, I then um, called Kevin and I picked up the phone and he was like, hey, and I said, I got beat up. And he was like, open the door. The cops are out front. So I opened the door and then I saw like this cop literally just like, honestly, what I felt like was that he rushed the door. Um, and then I don't, I don't remember anything after that. I have watched videos of like body cam footage to kind of like piece it together a little bit because it's just confusing to me. Um, 
so I know like I had a whole conversation with him they got EMS there and everything like that um but really the way that I the way that I remember it is is that the cop showed up and it was like okay cool like this is the good guy he's gonna take take care of us and I don't have to worry about it anymore and so I just like I just don't remember anything after that um for like three days (laughs) so at that point um you hadn't realized like you still didn't know where Heidi was you just assumed that she was still hiding um so in the body cam footage that I have watched when they were asking about my kids I told them you know I told all three of them and I said Henry and Alice are both here but Heidi I don't know I haven't seen her I think he took her so I think there was somewhere in my brain that like at that point I had come to the conclusion that she was gone Mm -hmm. um but cognitively, no, I, I, I actually don't really know what I thought, to be honest. Because you had, I mean, it was traumatic brain injury, right? It yeah. was. After that, like, I went to the hospital. My husband, like, then started, you know, speeding down from Virginia. And the cops basically, like, called a ton of backup and then started searching our neighborhood. Because the thought was, initially, was that she was scared and she went and hid somewhere. So they like, I mean, they were searching the attic, they searched our um, garage, they searched, I mean, if you've ever seen Whitney Lake area, it's like a ton of, it's not a ton of forest anymore, because they tore them all down and built more houses, but it was a ton of forest then. Mm -hmm. Um, There's tons of trees everywhere, and they, um, I guess the fire department and the police, like both were searching everywhere, all over this neighborhood. Um, They got the Charleston Police Department dive team and started diving in the lake. Um, They got canine units, too, because um, to basically pick up her scent. And the funny thing is, is that the day that Kevin left on Sunday, we had gone for a walk around the lake and we were like throwing the ball to the dog like over on the other end of the lake. And so these dogs actually picked up her scent, which Honestly, like, side note, that's amazing that these canines can literally pick up a scent from two days earlier, two, almost three days earlier. Um, But they picked up her scent over there where the dog was playing, where we were playing catch with the dog. And that's like they dove into the lake. And I think we talked to a couple of the dive team members and they said they were in the lake for about six hours that night searching. Um, Which is honestly, like, it's insane at how much response they did and all the stuff that they, like, exhausted. They shut down both bridges to Johns Island. They had helicopters searching. The Coast Guard actually, like, had helicopters up searching as well. Um, Because originally they just thought that it was a missing, uh, like, a missing persons Mm -hmm. type of thing. And let's see, this probably started at maybe 7 o'clock at night. Um, on Tuesday the 13th and at about I think midnight maybe one o'clock in the morning is when they called the FBI and they're like I think she was kidnapped I don't think she's here um so then they had the FBI come out and basically like set up a whole thing but honestly like kind of the problem was is that she was taken at eight o'clock in the morning and it's now like 1am the next morning like she's now been gone for almost 24 hours um and like in talking with a bunch of the fbi guys like it's i mean the first 24 hours after a child goes missing is like the most crucial time to find them and typically 
if they're not found within 48 hours, it's usually either A, they're not going to find them, or, or B, like, they're not – uh, like if a if a kidnapper is going to kill a child, it's going to be within the first twenty four hours. So like if you don't end up with that like crucial like critical window worth of time, if you don't find a kid then, then if they were gonna be murdered, they're gonna they're already gonna be murdered. Which mm-hmm. is so, like I mean some of this just sounds terrible, but you know that's kind of the like you know um, timeline that they were working on of like we've lost so much time already and we barely have any more time left based on like you know, I don't know, all the fancy FBI research mm-hmm. stuff. Um, <laughs> and so the problem was is that I barely gave a description of the guy. Um, I, like, wasn't really sure what he looked like a whole lot. I never saw his car. I never saw him following me. I never saw him park. I never saw any of it. So I couldn't even say, like, what type of car that he was in. And so the problem is is that they can't – um, how the Amber Alert system works is, is that they it goes really it relies really heavily on like cars and license plates numbers because um, if they narrow it down and make it super specific of what you can call for an Amber Alert, then it makes it a higher likelihood that people really pay attention to it because you know mm-hmm. you don't get Amber Alerts that often. So when you get them, you're like, oh, I'm really gonna pay attention. But it's it's a good detailed description of the car and usually has a plate number as well that you can look at. And they didn't have any of that in our case. So it was basically like they were shooting blind. They didn't know which direction he had left town. They literally had nothing to go on other than she was missing and some male <laughs> took her that I had never seen before. Like I knew nothing about him. I've never seen him, He, you know, anything. So it wasn't like – it wasn't like there was – honestly, at that point, and you'll hear my husband talk about it now too, of like – there literally was absolutely zero hope that there would be much of a chance at all to get her back. Um, and let's see, when was it? It was probably late morning ish that, um, on the 14th, so February 14th in the morning, they got a tip from some gas station in Georgia. Um, he had tried to use my debit card, um, to get gas. And, of course, it, like, was declined because he didn't know the right zip code. But that got that got alerted. So then, at least at that point, it was, like, the first signal of hope that maybe, like, you know. And then at that also at that point, like, because they were able to see surveillance videos and they were able to talk to the gas station person. They're like, yes, there was a kid in the car with him. Um, so it was like, okay, so he still has her. And this is the direction out of Charleston that he took. And so they got um, – Georgia State Police and the Georgia FBI units, like, on it looking for her. Um, but, like, what's so funny is is that I, you know, like, whenever I think about this or whenever I tell this story, it's like, hey, like, the cops were awesome. This is all the stuff that they set up. This is what they, like, went through to, to find her. And honestly, like, uh, huge props to them and, like, what they were able to you know, get in such a little, uh, and the amount of, like, task force that they put on it. There's also, the FBI has, um, I had never even heard of them before, but they have a, um, it's a CARD team, which is Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Teams that they have, and it's, like, the super small section of the FBI, but they literally, I mean, you'll get a call and be like, uh, it's like they carry pagers and it's like, hey, a child's missing and you hop on a plane and you literally fly. So that team was actually like, you know, 
activated when Heidi went missing to kind of also help with like, you know, um, efforts on finding her. So the amount of people that were on it in just a few hours time around the entire country that like were elicited to find her was amazing. But what's funny is, is that she was found, honestly, she was found because God decided to like sprinkle a little bit of like (laughs) beautiful dust (laughs) onto the (laughs) entire thing. And it's like, well, no, I mean, the cops are great, but actually, like, nope, <laughs> yeah. they're not who found her. Like, it's really just God that did it. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to pause you for a second. So at this point, though, you were in the hospital, correct? The, correct. Her start, were you, and you, did you understand that she was missing? Um. So at this point, for all of February 14th, I was in the hospital. Um, we had friends that had taken our other kids um so our other four kids were like pieced out into like two different households um my parents my sister and brother-in-law my in-laws like were all flying in I think they had all gotten there by the time that the morning of the 14th had happened um they said that I needed like extensive surgery but couldn't do it yet because there was I don't know. They were waiting for, I think, some of the swelling to go down a little bit before they could actually, like, perform surgery. Um, so I don't remember anything from the 14th, like, at all. I know that I was talking, like, when I've talked to people, like, I was talking, but my husband has said that I literally made absolutely no sense. Nothing nothing connected. Nothing made sense. Nothing, you know, really matched up with anything that you could piece together as much. So, no, I don't think that I really – I think on some level I did because I was talking and I would say stuff, but again, it's like this weird, like sometimes some weird in between, between conscious and unconscious. And I think it was in that to where I still five years later, don't have a memory of it. So I can't even say personally how I was doing or what I was thinking or how I was feeling. Cause I, I have absolutely no memory of it, but to hear other people talk about it, I was, I don't know. Um, didn't seem to really have like a grasp on what was happening at all. Um, I do know that like for that day, Kevin really thought that he was gonna, he's like, really, it was looking like I was gonna lose my, lose my four-year-old and my wife, like all in the same day (laughs) is really what it was, what it was starting to look like, um, to him. Um, and so when she, like when they finally, found her, I think I had finally just, like, had just gotten back into surgery, because basically what they found, like, I had multiple fractures. It's called a Laporte II fracture, which, like, basically from, like, your cheekbones and your upper jaw, and then all the way, like, across your nose and everything is completely, like, free-floating in your face. <clears throat> um, and then, like, you know, your eye sockets are circles, and the bottom part of my eye sockets were missing on both of them. Um... <laughs> So, so the first surgery that they did was like an eight hour long surgery to basically connect my like upper jaw and my nose back to the rest of my face. Um, and then I had another surgery like a week and a half later to fix my first eye socket. And then the other eye socket was actually repaired like three months later. Um, and basically how they described it to my family was if the eye sockets weren't fixed and my, like your eyes, because your, your like bones, your eye socket bones are like 
makes sense. It's what holds your eyeballs like in there. Mm -hmm. And so if those aren't fixed, then like your eyes start to sink down into your cheeks. (laughs) Like that would be a problem. (laughs) Just a little bit of a problem. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so that first surgery was basically to like connect my face back together, I think essentially. (laughs) And it was like, my husband said it was about like an eight hour long surgery. Um, that they did that like well into like Wednesday night. Um, and I remember, I, I think he said he told me that they found her like right as I was going into surgery. But again, I like, I don't remember even being told that she was found or anything. I really want to, I want to hear more about how long you were in the hospital, but I have to know a little bit more about when they found her. Please tell me. And I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's like the super exciting part. <laughs> Um, so how she was actually found was, so after they left the gas station in Georgia, they actually dropped down and drove into, um, Alabama. And so they're now in Alabama, which I didn't know anything about Alabama. I had never been to Alabama. I'm like completely like Alabama, um, virgin at this point because I'm like, I mean, where is Alabama? Somewhere in the United States, I guess. Um, but they, they dropped into Alabama and he, I don't know, I guess he was tired. So to hear, because I finally did hear his account of everything, to hear his account, they stopped in, um, a let's see, one or two houses still in South Carolina um, where he beat guys up, I guess, and like stole, like got a bunch of drugs. Um, and then he stopped in several houses in Georgia and also got a bunch of drugs um and alcohol so he's like been driving it's just like honestly it's like this weird picture to be like okay you're literally driving with my four-year-old without a car seat in the front seat of a car completely high and drunk Mm. cool this is totally what I was wanting for my for my child (laughs) um seriously crazy so he at this point was completely high and decided that he just needed maybe he was starting to come off of it I don't know but he got exhausted I guess and just wanted to pull over and take a nap so Alabama especially in like super rural tiny place Alabama it's full of trees and like random outcroppings and like random roads all kinds of random places that probably don't really make a whole lot of sense but there it is so he actually pulled off of the highway and like we've driven down there and seen it too it's like this like alcove of trees with like a little itty bitty dirt road like off of the interstate essentially or front it was like a frontage road off of the interstate and then this so like you know right off of the main highway drove into those bushes parked a car and passed out um where in Alabama this was it was um there's like a bunch of little tiny cities or towns he was technically in the city or in the town of Riverside there's also Pell City and Talladega that's, like, all right in that area. And it's about an hour outside, an hour east of Birmingham, Alabama. Um, so where he pulled out at this, like, tree alcove was right next to railroad tracks um, where a couple of, like, contract railroad workers were, like, fixing a line of track that day. Um, this was let's see, like early, late afternoon, early evening on the 14th. And they just thought that this car looked a little bit 
suspicious. There was this, like, chick sitting in the front seat, and the dude is passed out in the driver's seat. And they're like, we we didn't know, because we've met these guys. And they're like, we honestly, we didn't know. We didn't know if it was, like, dad in, like, a diabetic coma or something. Or what it looked like, it just didn't look right. So we decided to call 911 about it. And I guess apparently, again, with like the whole county and, you know, stuff, they called the wrong one. And these guys that like just didn't know this looked a little weird. Decide, I mean, I think they I think they said they called 911 about three different times to try and get the like right dispatch area to get it completely patched out. So kudos to them for being like super persistent on it. Um, but when it got patched to the Riverside, the police police department um the police chief there he took the call and he was like I decided I wasn't gonna send my guys because that police department I think is like the chief and then like two officers that work for the day um the building shares it like they have a shared building with the fire department um so it's like the volunteer fire department and the police station like all in one little itty bitty building and then I think town hall is also connected (laughs) um he just decided he wasn't going to send his two guys out there because they'd I guess they'd had a long day um and he wanted to get away from the computer anyways so he like got it from the computer and apparently was right around the corner from the station so that's the other funny thing is is that he jumped in his car and literally like drove behind the station like through a couple of trees and like parked the car and got out and walked over to this guy's car. (laughs) He's like, I walked up to him and he's passed out. It's like, I knocked on the window and he like got out of the car and he's like, Hey, I'm going to need you to state your name. He's like, not going to lie to you. And he's like, great. So glad that you're not going to lie to me. So he gave him his full name, gave him his social security number. (laughs) He's like, okay, great. Like, who's the girl in the car? And he's like, oh, she's my stepdaughter. Okay, where's her mom? <laughs> he's like, oh, she's back in John's Island. <laughs> he's like, okay. He's like, well, <laughs> why don't we just come back to the station? You know, see if we can do anything for you. And like, well, we'll just talk a little bit more. Um, And really, like, I don't know. But I think that a lot of rookie cops may or may not, depending on what it looked like, wouldn't take that information as being suspicious or not. But this guy has been, he had been a police in and out of like probably every department possible in a police department over the past like 30, 35 years. So he was like super well seasoned in like so many different avenues. And he was like, it just, it didn't look right. She was sitting, she was obviously super young. She was sitting in the front seat. She, at this point, was no longer in her clothes. She was wearing adult clothes that were obviously way too big for her. And he's like, there was a knife on the dashboard and then a a liquor bottle, um, like, on the floorboards. He's like, so it just didn't look, like, it didn't look right. Um, And I guess he, I guess then he goes, "Um, well, I have a bad back. Can you carry the girl? And he's like, absolutely not a problem. So he grabs Heidi out of the front seat, and Heidi, like, the second Heidi got into his arms, she literally, like, death grip locks her arms and her feet, like, around him. Um, And that, he was like, yeah, then it was, like, obvious the spidey senses were going, that something wasn't, wasn't right, because she literally death gripped him. The second that, that he had Heidi, 
then Evans jumps back into the car and starts racing away. Well, of course, we're in, like, backwoods Alabama. He pulls out his firearm and shoots two into the tire. He's like, I try to get Heidi off of me. Try to Because he brought the fire chief, too. So the fire chief was also standing nearby. He's like, I tried to get the fire chief to take her from me, so I wasn't going to shoot a gun with her, but she wouldn't let go. She's, I mean, he's like, I literally was trying to get her off of me, and she wouldn't. So <laughs> he just – so – I, like, I don't know. I don't want to be on the wrong side of him ever because if you can shoot two point blank into a tire while it's driving away and holding a four-year-old. <laughs> oh, my. It's with a baby on his head. He shot the tire as the guy tried to get away? Yes. Like a movie. Like, like, seriously, this is totally, like, movie, like, so cool. I'm like, what what condition is Heidi in? Is she okay? Tell us about her. <laughs> okay, so he shoots two in the tire. Of course, he, like, races away a little bit with his tire, like, blown out. I guess he stopped um, at some random junkyard, like, down the road a little bit and switched out to a donut tire and kept going. Um, that's the other thing that's nice about, like, a seasoned cop. He honestly was like, you know what? My first priority is the child, not the bad guy. And so he literally took the plate number and took the kid and went back to the station and like ran all the things and did all the stuff. So when they got back to when they got back to the station, Heidi wanted cookies and milk. So they're like, "We will give you cookies and milk, girl." So you give her cookies and milk. They asked her her name. She said it was Heidi. Um, and then I guess the secretary or whoever was in the office was like, um, "She's like, oh my gosh, like I think I think this might be the girl that went missing yesterday from John's Island." The second they said that, he actually called um, one of his friends, who's an FBI agent out of the Birmingham office, um, called him. He's like, I think I think I found your missing girl. Um, and so at that point, then <clears throat> Special Agent Frank jumps in the car and drives from Birmingham to Riverside, which it's about apparently it's about an hour drive, and he said he made it in about fifteen minutes. <laughs> so he was like flying down this road to basically like find this girl they took a picture of Heidi sent it to Kevin said hey we need to verify that this is your daughter Kevin verified it um and then they took Heidi to they took Heidi to Birmingham Children's Hospital so they got her checked out at Birmingham Children's Hospital um for a girl who had just like gone through all of that I think I honestly kids are amazing they're so special I think in a lot of ways, she was, I don't want to say fine, but all things considered, we have, like, I met, it was several months later, but I met her surgeon, um, and he was like, I, he's like, your daughter just, I mean, she, he's like, you can always tell, like, the kids that will be okay and the kids that won't, and he's like, and Heidi was just so positive and so uplifting through the entire thing. He's like, I knew she was going to be okay. So how were you told that Heidi was found? Were you um, awake at that point? Were you alert? What was that moment like? Um, so that was, that would have been on Thursday. So basically after Kevin, um, after they verified that Kev, that Heidi was Heidi, um, they got a, uh, got a plane, um, and Kevin and a couple of the, um, 
guys from the police department and a couple of the FBI agents went with Kevin down to Alabama to get Heidi. Um, and they stayed, she stayed overnight in the hospital um, on Thursday night and they came home on Friday. So on Thursday, Kevin then called, I don't know if he called my mom or my sister, but I was in the room and they basically, they, they put it on speakerphone. And Kevin just started rattling through of like, I'm here, I have Heidi, we're coming home in the morning. Like, and because I remember, uh, like, I remember this point, because for me, I remember waking up on Thursday at some point, I had like all these weird dreams. And I remember waking up and then realizing that I was in the hospital. And um, right around the same time as when my mom and my sister came in and put Kevin on speakerphone, Kevin started talking and then he goes, wait, um, like, is she awake? Does she understand what's going on? Have you talked to her? I remember them saying, no, we haven't talked to her yet, but yeah, I think she understand. I think she is awake enough to understand it. So then after I got off the phone with him, then my sister basically filled me in. And then at that point, I remember talking to them kind of like, a, you know, about like what had happened somewhat. Um, I remember like talking to several cops too, because they were trying to get all kinds of random information and stuff just to kind of figure out like what had happened and everything as they were doing stuff. So I do have some random memories of talking to people. Um, but really it was like Thursday, maybe Thursday afternoon that it was like, okay, like this is what happened. Oh my God. Wait, <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> what do you mean? She's in Alabama. And I don't have like tons of memories of like complete reactions, but I do remember thinking it was like starting to kind of like click of like, oh, hey, like you kind of have an idea of what happened to you now because I was remembering then the attack um, a little bit. And then they basically were like, okay, so this is what happened like after you were picked up from the cops and this is what all is, you know, gone on. So that was a little bit, I don't know, that, that was interesting. But at that point I was still like, you know, still in the ICU. They moved me not too long after all of that, but I was still in the ICU. And I think, um, I used to think that I like totally remembered everything after that point. And I don't, I've had people tell me things that I was like, that didn't happen. It, and it did. So I don't know how much I actually have, you know, memory wise from like probably at least two weeks, if not longer after that. But she came home on Friday and then, because of course he had told her that I was dead, um, she then actually got like a police escort into the hospital because of course it was like, you know, RSV season. So like no children were allowed in MUSC at the time. So um, they got like a special police escort so that she would come up and see me um, <laughs> at that point. Um so yeah, I don't know. It was all like very, I don't know. It was weird. <laughs> the whole thing was weird. So did she recognize you? Like I'm envisioning you after this eight hour surgery, like was your face wrapped up? What it, like, what was the condition at that point? Could she, and tell me about the reunion. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, no, my face wasn't wrapped up. Um, I do know that there was, I've been told that there was talks of my, jaw being sutured shut for a while and it wasn't um the I mean because I'm a nurse so like all this medical stuff is like all super fascinating but like um so how they did it the the 
super long surgery, I actually don't have, like, they didn't even cut open my face at all. They actually went, like, in under my upper lip. So I have, like, this scar pretty much the entire, like, underneath between, like, the teeth and my lip was cut. And then they went up through there. <laughs> um, and then for my eyes, they actually went down through the eye sockets um, to do that. So, like, I had sutures that, like, came out of my eye socket for a couple of days. But, like, no outside, like, on my face, like, no you know, no appearance that I would have had any major surgery. So I think I'm sure I was probably swollen and everything. Um, but at that point, like my glasses had been ruined. I hadn't gotten new glasses yet. I really couldn't see myself a whole lot. I remember looking in the mirror and being like, oh, okay. But I couldn't really see myself very well because, again, I'm blind. <laughs> um, since the third grade, blind. So um, I – she seemed, I mean, she was super timid. It was kind of this like interesting, awkward exchange um, a little bit. I mean, it, like it would be so great to be like, oh my gosh, it was so great, this reunion. And we just like hugged and snuggled for hours and it wasn't. She showed up and she was super timid and like not sure. And then I didn't know what I was supposed to do or not do. And I don't remember really planning anything. And so like she sat at the edge of the bed and I talked to her a little bit. I don't even think she wanted to come near me though. So like, I don't even think that she hugged me or anything like that um I think and I don't really know because I mean mental health psychology therapy was so so um importantly like communicated to us that it was something that like happened started right away so I can't really say if that demeanor of her and probably me like conscious honestly like disassociated disconnected to like what reality is probably mm. would have lasted and probably still be a problem but we seriously like I mean I barely had gotten home from the hospital and we already had a psychologist like sitting in the living room being like all of your family needs therapy we are starting today mm. so it was uh -huh. like not really an option at all which honestly like shout out to victim advocates all over we've had a billion victim advocates with the police department and the FBI and the um, uh, Department of Justice. Like, we've had a million victim advocates. They are seriously, like, the best unsung heroes. Like, nobody knows about them because they're behind the scenes, but they're the seriously the best. And I think it was the victim advocate from the Charleston Police Department that was like, um, here's your two therapy centers. Pick which one you want. <laughs> and there wasn't like a, you can't, you're not, you don't have to. Here's some options. It was like, which one are you taking? And I'm setting it up right now. Wow. That's amazing. So you get home, the dust starts to settle, you go through your, your therapies and counseling and everything, um, and you start to heal. I want to know, how did you wrestle through this with God? Like, did you question his goodness? I mean, I'm sure you had some questions for the Lord after all of this. Like, what was that process like? So many questions, but um, so by get home just understand our home is now crime scene. It was like crime scene police taped off. Um, we had, which we didn't, we don't know who, um, it was anonymous, but we actually had people anonymously um, pay for a house out on Seabrook Island, which is a gated community. Um, they basically chose to give us this big house um, behind the gate so that we could feel safe. So we were out at Seabrook for maybe two months I think it was two months that we were out there. We, we moved back home in April. Um, so first off, 
the ocean is really good for for healing and for the soul we could you could hear the ocean from the deck and you can walk to the beach um and I mean it was like cold so you weren't swimming but still in Charleston even in March like you're walking to the beach and you can at least hang out in the sand in a sweatshirt um and I did like I remember doing that a lot not just that but like we had I had random friends like coming in and visiting and of course they all wanted to go to the ocean which makes sense because we're not from the ocean we're from Colorado in the middle of the country where there's no water (laughs) at all um so it was a really, honestly, it was a really nice activity to do. And it's really easy for, even if you're bringing a friend who m- maybe sometimes have has a lot to say, the, it's like the ocean is this really nice, calming thing. Honestly, mountains are the same way because I'm a mountain girl. But, you know, it's just calming. It's peaceful. It, you know, um, you get distracted on the beauty of nature and you don't have to talk as much as in, you know, honestly in concrete village of cities mm-hmm. and I really think that um I'd be lying to myself if I didn't say that like nature and being outside with was probably a huge piece of it um I also remember not too long after I got out of the hospital Kevin actually let me um or purchase a massage for me I remember going and as this lady is like massaging and she like knew, so she was being really careful on like what to massage and how to do it and everything. Um, and she like during it, I just I just remember thinking like in the massage chair of like, not everybody's out to hurt me. Like this isn't people are like, you know, and it just really felt like people are good. Like all of these police, like they fought for my kid, like hardcore. And then now just even down to the random massage therapist, like she went into her line of work because she wants people's muscles to feel better. You know, honestly, like I went into nursing because I wanted to help people feel better and less scared. Like we all, honestly, most people seem to go into the line of work that they're in because they want to better communities and better people. And it was just like, there were so many examples of that to me for through different people and different experiences that it was just really, honestly, it was really hard to not see that there's goodness and beauty somewhere because everybody, there were so many people. I mean, we had, we had so many people. I had so many friends that like flew in and wanted to help. We had, I mean, meals covered for at least two months, if not like three or four months. I mean, we had like, it was a, the whole, honestly, the whole community like turned out Mm -hmm. for, you know, helping in recovery. I, I think it's trauma in general, like the more outpouring you have from people, the better you do in recovery, honestly. Um, Cause you just have, you just have people that are like, Hey, I'm here. I'm with you. Like I'm going to walk through this. And it really, that helped a lot. And I mean, I can't, <laughs> I can't tell the story of how Heidi was found without it being super obvious. Like why were the, why were the railroad workers randomly working um, on that line of track, they also said that they shouldn't have still been working. It was actually like giving them more trouble. They had to go back and like try different parts and stuff. They said that we never would have been working on the same line of track for that many hours that day. It was, it was odd. So it was like, it was super odd that they were still there to even see the cars. And it was super odd that we ended up with like this police chief that clearly like, you know, honestly like acted the exact way that he should have acted. You know, it was just like, it's all these things that just, 
you don't want to chalk it up to coincidence because there's just too many coincidences for you to just say it's coincidence. No, it was, you know, it was clearly God using his hand to work through bad circumstances, honestly. And Mm -hmm. it's too hard for me to dismiss that. Your story shows me the power of prayer. I mean, there were so many people praying. For those that don't know, um, Brittany and I were part of the same mom's group. And so I just remember... um, several of us just crying out to God. I remember being doubled over, just screaming out to God that Heidi would be found. And the whole community really of Charleston um, Mm -hmm. was on their knees praying. And so it's just, it is cool to see how God has had his hand in, in all the little details. Um, I have a big question for you. Have you been able to, have you been able to forgive Evans? And if so, when when did you decide that that needed to happen? Yes. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of a complicated thing because, like, I mean, do I view him as a douchebag and will we ever be friends? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so I think that forgiveness was more like, a, oh, I'm working through recovery and I'm working through all of this stuff. And I think for me, a big piece of being able to like move on to the next step of recovery had to be forgiveness. Um, it was like, it wasn't something that I could like dismiss uh, at all. So mm-hmm. it, um, it's actually been like a huge thing. And I, um, for the, let's see, how do I actually want to like timeline this out for you? Um, I, Joseph in the Bible was like the big, huge, like key point um, or keynote person that like really honestly helped out with this. It was like, I mean, obviously like I've read the Joseph and the coat of many colors like a billion times as a kid is just like the obvious Bible story that you know, one of the ones that you know. Um, But it's just so interesting to like read it from a different perspective of like, oh my gosh, like, like he had his brothers who hated him. And not only did they throw him into a dirt pit, but then they sold him. (laughs) They sold him. And then after that, they totally forgot about him. completely decided to just carry on with their lives. They're like, yeah, I mean, he gone. We don't have to worry about him at all. And then after they did that, they literally left him for dead. And in a lot of ways, this sounds morbid, but in some respects, like I was left for dead. Like, I mean, like I know that I waited several hours and us as nurses are terrible sometimes. It's how we cope. It's not because we're really awful. I promise. <laughs> but it's like, I have this funny saying. I'm like, but did you die? <laughs> you know, like, did not die. So I was fine. <laughs> mm. But on some level, like I was just kind of like ditched off to the, off to the side, left for dead. And it was like, okay, but what did, what did Joseph do then later? <laughs> Joseph forgave his brothers and it felt, I felt like, pretty much the whole, my whole thing was like, hey, like, you just, like, you need to forgive him just for me. And part of me, there's a slight random part of me occasionally that's like, I really hope he got something out of that. Or I really hope that I, you know, it would be kind of cool to hear if he did something cool later. But I also didn't feel like I was making this decision to, 
make it feel like maybe, I don't know, maybe he'll leave a Bible study group in jail or whatever. I don't care. He can do it or not do it. That's for, that's, that's up to him to decide. For a while I was like, no, this is really why I want to do this because what if we could like reform? And I don't know, it was like this weird, like disjointed, confusing part of me. But now it's just like, I think I just need to forgive him too, to forgive him so that I can, I can make it past this. I can, you know, I can move on and not feel like he's bound to, I mean, not feel like I'm bound to him. Mm. Right. I think that's, we, we forget that forgiveness isn't condoning the behavior. It isn't saying what happened was okay. We forgive because we forgive for us, for our hearts and our spirits and um, so that there's not a hindrance between our relationship with the Lord. Like, I think the the definition of forgiveness is um, choosing not to be bitter and resentful and angry. And, like, we do that for us. We're not, you know, you're not forgiving for, for Evans. You're forgiving for you. And that's, like, when we are faced with opportunities to forgive, if we can remind ourselves what it really is for, um, it can make the process easier. Morgan, do you have a question? I have a thousand questions. I will start with two. Um, they're un- completely unrelated, so take them however you want. But um, I'm I'm wondering about Kevin, like your husband. What what has his process been like? Has he? I I can only imagine how much he has struggled um, with anger and with um, with fear, uh, perhaps. And I'm sure you've struggled with fear. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And if that's something that you um, that you still combat, and if it is, then how how do you come against that? Okay, so that was like ten questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so we'll start with the with the stuff about Kevin. So this is this is what makes this trauma specifically, and okay, not just this trauma, but like people who deal with like multiple facets of one trauma, so difficult. Um, if I would have just been beat up and you didn't add in the piece of Heidi, then that's enough of a trauma in of itself. And I think that Kevin obviously would have struggled with some stuff related to that, um, about, you know, having a spouse that's beat up and then like learning all that stuff. But then on top of it, then you had this whole piece of like a parent losing your child and not knowing if she was going to come back. And I think that because I spent some time like, you know, unconscious slash conscious that's not really understanding of a lot of stuff. I think that even though I have obviously had some thoughts and questions of like, what would have happened? Like, if you know, this wouldn't have been the outcome. Um, but Kevin like deeply dealt with some of that stuff. And so it's been kind of rough because like everybody in our family, I mean, like, Sarah and Silas weren't picked up from school and then they were picked up from school and taken to somebody's house that they kind of knew, but just barely from church. Cause we had only lived in Charleston for like six months. Um, and then they weren't told any, anything like they didn't, they really were told nothing cause they didn't know what to say. Kevin was gone. I was gone. And so they were dealing with all of that. Kevin dealt with not knowing where Heidi was and worried about me. And like, I dealt with the whole, you know, attack thing, <laughs> And so it's been kind of this, like, really hard to, like, hard to, I don't know, figure out. It's like, on one level, we wanted to figure it out as a family and move forward as a family. 
but then you almost can't because then Kevin and I have dealt with individual things that are completely separate from each other. And it's been, it's been, I'd be lying if I said that, oh yeah, everything's like awesome. It's been difficult at best to figure out how to navigate your own trauma and then your spouse's trauma and then your kid's trauma and then somehow figure out how to all stay together and have a happy, normal family, which happy, normal families I don't think actually exist, but that's the goal that we all have, right? (laughs) Wow. So, um... Yeah, that's a lot of trauma to navigate. I I honestly hadn't even considered your kiddos that were at school. Um, I've I've considered this story from mm-hmm. your perspective, um, from Heidi's perspective, from your husband's perspective, but I didn't even consider the other kids. Um, I remember I had moved away from the Charleston area um, right before all of this happened, but I kept up with things through Sarah. I actually lived in Georgia. I still do. Um, and so I'm like, I have another another list of questions about that part of the story later. <laughs> but uh, but I remember when all of, when all of this was happening. What obviously I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for you. But what struck me is how close to home it felt for all of us, right? For all moms everywhere, it feels so close to home. This is one of your biggest fears as a mom. I mean, it's like all of the biggest fears compounded into one event, actually. So tell me about, mm-hmm. um, I, 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 hear, I hear you say that therapy and counseling and stuff has been a huge part of your recovery and praise the Lord that you had people pointing you that direction right away. Um, tell me how you've combated, how you've come against that fear and anxiety in the years since. Um, so the big tactic that, so the therapy group that we were with, um, is actually through the National Crime Victim Center. Um, so it's like super, everybody's trauma informed, um, which I'm finding out now that we've like, you know, left the area and we've like researched different things and everything. Uh, trauma informed therapists are actually harder to come by than honestly, I think they should be. Um, but, or tra- honestly, trauma informed people in general, um, but the trauma-informed National Crime Victim Center, like, step to therapy was actually um, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. It's basically um, a lot of, like, repeated exposures to things. And the, the more you repeat exposures, then you, like, which is nice. You're working through, through it with a therapist of, like, okay, now that you're exposed to this, like, what do you do about it? And then, you know, and it, it was a huge step up. So it was originally it was like identify the fears that you have and then let's work through like specific exposures that we can do towards these fears um and then it gets less scary because you've done it a hundred times you know I I think it's like honestly it's the ultimate like when you fall off the bike you like get up and ride the bike again you don't like you know, never ride a bike again, you expose yourself to that bike over and over and over mm-hmm. and it's less scary. Wow. Um, so moving on from that, I mean, so that's what we had originally, that's what, what I originally had done. I think it was initially, it was really good that we just, cause the coast guard of course was like happy to move us out of the Charleston area, like immediately. Mm-hmm. And I decided to not do that. Cause I thought that it would be better for us to like stay and hopefully work through stuff. 
um, which I think initially it was a really good idea. So that's why we moved back into our house um, like two months later. And like pretty much all of the exposure therapy to begin with was all wrapped around, obviously, <laughs> the actual home. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, and look, you still do some of that. So what what's nice is, and this is how my therapist had described it too, was that post-traumatic stress, a lot of times with earlier intervention, those <clears throat> um, stress, those symptoms of PTSD can get so minimized um, with earlier therapy because a lot of the PTSD type stuff, it's over like repeated thing, avoidance and repeated things that then scare you and you completely reject and avoid that stuff. And so you're always scared. You're always scared of heights or you're always scared of loud noises or you're always scared of walking to the front door of your house because now it's been five years and you've never done that and you won't never be able to do it because it's so like hardwired in as a habit to be afraid of it. Um, so like combat veterans that have P- like hardcore, like hardwired PTSD, they only get so good because therapy is great, but it should have been introduced way earlier because they've now formed habits that your brain yeah. just on some level can't a hundred percent erase Versus we started therapy right away. It was before I had gotten any habit. So a lot of that stuff has been really nice that I've been able to work through it ongoing. What sucks is I still have thoughts that I wouldn't have had without this. And then that gets tiring. That gets frustrating. But I also feel like I've been given five years worth of tools on like what, what you do about the thought. So it doesn't continue into a ton of fear. It's so fascinating to hear like how the neural pathways kind of relate to fear. I've I've never really thought about that. Um, That's fascinating. Oh my gosh. So fascinating. Wow. Okay. This is another, another big question. How is Heidi today? Oh, she's so great. (laughs) Um, She is in fourth grade and She's like any other normal fourth grader that you would imagine. She is super into arts. She just um, got a pen pal and is now doing, like, she's got Harry Potter stationery and, like, you know, is now writing letters to her pen pal, Um, you know, and she's great. Like, I, um, what's nice about Heidi at this point is, again, therapy um, if I haven't said that enough, but because she went through all of the same type of stuff, she, you know, that, that we did like writing out a trauma narrative and going through fears and how you work through those fears and talking through them and stuff that, I mean, she's done all of that as well, that now if she talks about it, I couldn't tell you. And I don't know that we're, I don't think we're done with her. Like, I think there'll be other things that potentially come up as she gets older, but for now, she'll bring it up occasionally. She's like, oh yeah, when I got kidnapped and she'll like go on and then she'll just change the story. And it's not like, it's not something that like she wakes up every night with nightmares. She doesn't, you know, say it and then start crying. It's really just kind of like a, oh yeah, that happened. And then we move on from it. And it's just like, kind of, honestly, it's just like a story of her life essentially. Praise the Lord. What are some of the biggest ways that you've seen God's faithfulness to your family? Um, I think her recovery, for sure, 
um, is one of them. And I mean, this is kind of harder and I don't want to say that like, oh, I don't feel like he's been faithful, but it's like, it was so easy and he was, he, because we needed him to, but like he showed up so loudly the first couple of years that it was like, you couldn't get around him. You couldn't get away from him. He was like deafening noise in our ears. And that sounds weird for me to describe God like that, but it was almost like, and not that he was forcing himself on me, obviously, but like at the some level, it almost felt like I was being forced on him. It was like, I mean, he says, you, like the Bible says, like God is near to the brokenhearted. And I don't know that I like the whole word brokenhearted, but I really think that like he, uh, like he was so near. It was so obvious. It was so prevalent. Wow. It, you know, like everything just kind of like sung of that. Now that we've moved on further from it, it's like this new, like weird tier of like, yeah, you get out of this, like, bubble. honestly, like, it's almost like, you know, that really stupid movie bubble boy of like <laughs> 2018 happened. And God was like, I'm going to put you in a bubble <laughs> and it's going to be a Jesus bubble. And so then you like, hung out in the Jesus bubble <laughs> And then, but at some point, like, it comes a time that, like, Bubble Boy's got to get out of the bubble. And I think now, like, I've started to feel like in the last year or this school year or recently, now that we're coming up on five years, that it's, like, it's time for me, like, it's time for me to get out of the bubble. Like, I mean, he opened up the bubble a while ago. But, like, on some level, I'm, like, but I like the bubble. Like, I know who you are in the bubble. And you talk to me really loudly in the bubble. And, like, out of the bubble, he's not as loud it's a lot easier to get distracted by other things and it's a stuff gets a lot more confusing. And it's like, and I remember telling this to like my small group this past year and I don't remember, Oh, it was like, he's, you know, our password, it was one big sermon on like, Hey, so God will, God was faithful. Then he'll be faithful. Now, where have you seen his faithfulness in the past to where you can then be assured of that he's going to remain faithful in the future. And part of me goes, of course, I've got the best example ever of like how he was obviously faithful. And now I can know that he will still be faithful. I think it's just incredible when I hear your story and I hear other stories of, of suffering, how God's promises are true. And like as a Christian, of course, I'm supposed to believe God's promises are true. But when I see them play out in the lives of others, it just builds my faith so much. Like God will never leave us or forsake us. Like that's a promise. And when you said that he was so loud, is that how you put it? That he was so loud in your lives. Like, oh, that is, that's so beautiful. I love that description because that's the first thing I thought was yes. Cause he's a loving father and, and you're his daughter and, and your family, like, he was going to run after you and and not leave you alone and be close to your to your broken heart and just seeing god's promises fulfilled in the lives of those who go through trials is such a faith builder thank goodness that's got to do something for you right <laughs> <laughs> yeah um has there been like a specific verse that you've clung to over the years or i'm sure I mean, there's been several but... there's been a lot so i have you know, this like book that now the binding is dying on it, but I have all of my stuff written in it. 
and lots of tape at this point. But I have like a lot of verses that I wrote in the front and not just verses, but I also wrote quotes, but I'm like the worst plagiarizer ever because of course I didn't say who said any of this stuff. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but like some of the verses that I have written in here, I really do like a lot of them. Like one of them says, God is with her. She will not fall. Um, this is a big one that like I actually have hanging on my wall in my living room now is Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but someday you will. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, that's John 13, 7. The, uh, let's see. This one is Deuteronomy 7, 6. The Lord has chosen you to be his special treasured possession. Um, oh, this one was really good when I was talking for my victim impact statement for court. This is Exodus 4.12. Now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. Um, anyways, there's others, but those are like some really good ones. Um, and then obviously like all of Joseph's story was huge, has been huge. Um, now moving on, um, recently over the past like year or so actually like the um Shadrach Meshach and Abednego (laughs) is Mm. actually probably um a little bit more like it's really it's really interesting um to read that story and like I mean obviously like God saved him from the fiery furnace and he didn't and they didn't burn up but it's like what they actually said before that that is really interesting and that now thank goodness I didn't have to worry about this then but now it's really it's a good reminder to be like hey you know if god let's see let me read the verse exactly it said if our god whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand O king let him de- deliver us but if not be it known to you that we will still not serve mm-hmm. you so it's like he he's god if he, if he does but like he's still god if he doesn't and if he mm-hmm. chooses it, and if the answer is no, then that doesn't make him any less God than if he chooses yes. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. I love that. Um, I love that you're able to see God's unchanging character, even in this new season, that you're clinging to him and that you're reminding yourself in your study, in your Bible study, in what you preach to yourself, that God is God if he does, and he's He's God if he doesn't, that he's God when he's loud and in the bubble, and he's God when you're outside the bubble, and you're kind of having to learn how to walk with him all over again. Um, I, I kind of get the picture of uh, a parent, a daddy, um, who's helping his daughter learn how to walk, right? So like the baby holds onto your fingers and you walk around that way for a while. And then at some point you let go of the baby's hands and you, and you hold your hands out to the baby and the baby has to take some steps on their own. And I know like that's such a simplification of this, this journey, um, with the Lord. Um, and I I don't want to minimize your faith. Gosh, please don't hear me say that. I'm so amazed um, by how you have looked back to him this whole time. And I'm so impressed. Um, but that, you know, that's just kind of the picture I see is outside of the bubble is, is kind of learning to walk again. Um, I'm just so grateful, Brittany, that you've shared your story with us, that your story is not, it doesn't end, um, the day that, the day that you got beat up and Heidi got taken. Your story is a story of hope. And it's a story of redemption. And 
I just, I'm just praising the Lord for that all over again. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. It really, it feels like that is actually, was actually the start. Of mm, I love that. That's actually what it feels like. It's, a, it's been a start, not a stop. I love that. Thank you, Brittany. Yeah. We appreciate you. You're the best. Thanks, Yay. Brittany. Y'all, I am not going to lie to you. It took me two days to recover from recording this interview with Brittany. Her story is so powerful, and it's such a beautiful picture of how God wastes nothing. We are so grateful that you guys were here with us for today's podcast, and we'll see you back here for the next one in two weeks. Bye!